Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. To hear ad-free versions of our episodes published several days before their general release, subscribe to They Walk Among Us Plus. Head to patreon.com forward slash They Walk Among Us or search for They Walk Among Us on Apple Podcasts to learn more. Olsey Bedfordshire 14 years ago, the last of the brickworks had long been closed. The town known for its clay-rich soil was undergoing more redevelopment as light industry and residential areas expanded and the locals said goodbye to Wolsey's brick-making past. It has become a relatively popular place for commuters working in London, however the legacy of the brickworks is still visible throughout the region in the buildings constructed with Wolsey white bricks. Wolsey has stood the test of time. It is mentioned briefly in the Doomsday Book of 1086, and has been through many reinventions over the centuries. It has witnessed the births and deaths of thousands of fleeting occupants, but nothing in Alzi's varied history could compare to the horror of one man's murder in 2009. He was kept as a slave, he was beaten, shot at and stamped on. And it wasn't as though the police didn't know of the family. They were called out to deal with antisocial behaviour no less than 182 times. The court has heard all, all sorts of shocking things and how that um, violence uh, escalated over a number of years. And certainly in my experience, over 26 years' service, I've never come across anything um, you know, quite, quite so serious in that, that nature. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 25 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. 
The second installment will be available in four days. The Blue Lagoon in Alsey was created in the mid-1800s by the Alsey Brick and Lime Company. The quarry was flooded after the war and became known as the Blue Lagoon. The freshwater lake sits on private property, so permission is needed to conduct recreational activities. The lake reaches depths of 12 metres, making it a popular spot for divers and fishermen hoping to catch the few pike and carp that swim in its waters. The area around the Blue Lagoon is frequently visited by dog walkers or anyone looking to relax and unwind as they take in the scenery. On May 10th, 2009, a warm sunny afternoon, a couple strolling along the water's edge noticed something out of place. A bag was bobbing on the surface of the still water. It was next to a partially submerged wheelbarrow resting on the cracked mud of the bank. As the couple approached what appeared to be a nylon builder's bag, They were taken aback by an overpowering odour. The two walkers were concerned about what could be inside. It wasn't unheard of for somebody to dispose of an unwanted animal that way. Luckily, the pair spotted two fishermen close by and called them over to help retrieve the bag from the water. They each grabbed a corner and began to pull it ashore. Surprisingly, it was much heavier than expected. They opened the bag to see something wrapped in bin liners and clean film. One of the walkers later told a reporter for the Mirror newspaper. As the sacking was pulled away, we realised it was a body. We could clearly see the chest which appeared hairy and was a gaping hole on the top of the torso and it looked like the head had been hacked off. I couldn't see the whole body, but I think part of the legs may have been cut off too. It didn't seem like it was long enough to be a whole man's body. Police officers were called to the scene before the area was cordoned off with crime scene tape. Forensic experts examined the remains, which included a male torso, left forearm, lower legs, feet and hands. According to Detective Chief Inspector John Humphreys of the Bedfordshire and Hertfordshire Major Crime Unit, the body parts had been transported to the Blue Lagoon in the wheelbarrow. Dr Nat Carey would later carry out a post-mortem. The pathologist believed that the remains had been submerged in the water for some time, as he noted an advanced state of decomposition. Despite this, Dr. Carey found three stab wounds to the man's torso, and there were airsoft pellets embedded in the skin of his ankle and lower back. It was unclear if the wounds had been inflicted before or after death. Still, Dr. Carey was able to ascertain that the victim had sustained internal injuries to his stomach and intestines, likely inflicted by someone jumping on him. 
The pathologist also identified that the man's aorta had been pierced with a sharp object. That injury could have been the cause of death as the victim would have suffered internal bleeding. He determined that the body had been dismembered after death, and the incisions indicated that a serrated blade was used. Fingerprint samples were taken from the victim and run through the police database. They matched a 26-year-old named Michael Gilbert. Michael's family in Luton had not crossed paths with him for some time, so the police sought to determine who had last seen Michael alive. DCI John Humphreys appealed to the public and said, Our sympathies go out to the family of Michael Gilbert, who have lost a son and a brother. Anyone who has information about who is responsible for taking his body to the Blue Lagoon is asked to contact the police. If you are suspicious about a person or people who may be involved, please get in touch. Posters began to appear around Olsey asking for information as investigators hoped to jog someone's memory. Alarming reports of something sinister began to emerge, which led the police straight to a number of suspects, but it was not as straightforward as it seemed. DCI Humphreys said, While we have made five arrests, this is still a very active inquiry, and we still need people to help us establish how and when Michael's body was taken to the Blue Lagoon. The detective chief inspector went on to say that he was very keen to speak to people who regularly go to the Blue Lagoon and would remember seeing the wheelbarrow suddenly appearing. However, there weren't many people who felt brave enough to come forward, especially when they heard who was suspected of the killing. Michael Gilbert was not a stranger to the authorities. That's why they were able to match his fingerprints. Michael had been born into an unstable home in Luton on September 3rd, 1982. A third of five children, he had one sister and three brothers. Their mother's love life impacted the family. Rosalie's partners came and went without forming lasting bonds with the children, and the family moved frequently. Sometimes Michael Gilbert and some of his siblings had short-term placements in care. Michael was just ten months old when a neighbour reported that he had been physically abused, but nothing ever came of the report. The alleged abuser was never publicly identified. Michael was thought of as quiet and lacking in confidence, but at home things were different. There was no hiding the fact that he was Rosalie's favourite child. However, when he was nine years old, a sibling accused Michael of sexually assaulting them. An investigation into the allegation was undertaken, but the findings were inconclusive. The child then subsequently claimed that they weren't telling the truth. They were of the belief that if they alleged Michael had sexually assaulted them, they would be removed from the home and placed into care. 
A safeguarding report compiled after Michael's death concluded that as a child and teenager, aspects of Michael Gilbert's behaviour were sexualized, as he had been provided with no affection or guidance on how to behave in a non-sexualized way, and the previous allegations seemed to have never been entirely dismissed by other members of the family. This sequence of events led to Michael no longer being his mother's preferred child. Several years later, Michael Gilbert's enrolment at Halliard High School also proved to be challenging, as he found it difficult to make connections with his peers. Michael found himself the target of relentless bullying, as recalled by his friend Richard Armstrong. It was horrible stuff. Names drawn on him. He just sat there and took it. Michael wasn't seen as an academic child. It was obvious even to his classmates that he was struggling in all areas of his life. Michael's existence became even more difficult as he navigated the changes to his body during puberty. He had a particularly stressful year at 13 when he had a mastectomy to remove excess breast tissue. Over the next couple of years, Michael found himself being moved from home to home after his mother decided she could no longer care for him. When he was 15 years old, Michael's mother Rosalie accused him of sexually assaulting another boy. As a result, Michael was removed from the family home and placed into Bramble's children's home in Luton, Bedfordshire. Michael's mental health was suffering, and the children's home proved to be a harsh environment. He seemed almost childlike, and more susceptible to influence than others his own age. Like in school, he was a victim of bullying, so to protect himself, he tried to fit in. This led to participating in frequent escapes from the children's home and engaging in petty crimes, including burglary, criminal damage and shoplifting. When the teenagers got caught, Michael would always be left to shoulder the blame, and in his desire for acceptance, Michael readily accepted responsibility as a way to be liked. Staff at the home characterised Michael as vulnerable, and it was deemed he would find independent living challenging. However, despite this, no comprehensive evaluation or formal diagnosis of any form of disability was carried out. During his stay at the children's home, Michael Gilbert crossed paths with a teenager his own age, James Watt. Like Michael Gilbert, James Watt had endured a turbulent childhood under the care of his parents Antonio Watt and Jennifer Smith Dennis. James, alongside his brothers Robert, Richard and Colin, all became familiar faces within the legal system. At home there were numerous allegations of abuse and neglect, which resulted in interactions with social services the boys being placed on the at-risk register. Their upbringing was marred by evictions from a number of homes, leaving a trail of uneasy relationships with their neighbours. 
The Watt brothers were frequently seen unashamedly carrying knives and baseball bats. Wherever they moved, they terrorised their neighbours with threats of violence and racial slurs. One neighbour recounted how when his wife and daughter were home alone, they caught the Watt brothers peering through their windows. Another neighbour recalled, It was a life of hell, not just for my family, but the surrounding neighbours. Police officers were always a common presence wherever the Watt family were living, as locals frequently made complaints. Beyond the threats of violence, the Watt home was a constant source of disruptive noise, including late-night motorcycle revving and arguments spilling out onto the street. They often moved into their new home in the middle of the night, only to disrupt the peace within days of settling in. As he transitioned into a teenager, James Watt's half-brother Lee noted an escalation in James's already antisocial behaviour. He asserted dominance over both his siblings and parents, even using violence including whipping his mother with a belt. When James Watt was 13 years old, he was interviewed regarding a sexual assault of an infant. The following year saw James accused of assaulting his uncle who was disabled, followed by detention for shooting a pellet gun at passers-by. Despite run-ins with the law on multiple occasions, James Watt's behaviour did not improve. A year later, he threatened his mother with a knife and was convicted of shoplifting. His offences resulted in James being placed into Bramble's children's home. It was 1998 when Michael Gilbert and James Watt crossed paths at the children's home. James immediately recognised an easy target in Michael, someone he could effortlessly sway to his advantage. Under James's instruction, the two teenage boys embarked on a spree of vandalism, shoplifting and robberies. Many of these crimes resulted in charges, leading to both Michael and James being in and out of young offenders' institutions. By the following year, Michael had amassed ten convictions and cautions, primarily for burglary, criminal damage and shoplifting. He recognised that James had a negative influence on his life and repeatedly requested that they be kept apart from one another when they returned to the children's home. However, James didn't want to leave Michael alone and he always found a way to manipulate his way back into Michael's life. By 1999, Michael Gilbert was 16 years old and had been moved between two children's homes, a hostel and a night shelter for homeless people. 2000 wasn't much better. Michael flitted between a young offenders institute for petty crime and two hostels. His mother, Rosalie, still lived in Luton, but the relationship with her son was strained and they saw little of each other during this time. At 18 years old, Michael Gilbert was a vulnerable adult. Yet at the time, the understanding of what entailed vulnerability remained muddled and unclear. 
His money management skills were non-existent. He would rather give people his benefit payments than cover his rent. His mental health problems had been missed despite reporting hallucinations, anxiety and depression. Michael Gilbert was falling through the cracks and he was not referred to adult safeguarding agencies. He was, however, offered courses in employment and life skills and seemed enthusiastic about the idea, but he never turned up. Furthermore, the accommodation he was given didn't last long after he quickly fell into arrears with his rent. Michael was left to navigate the complexities of adulthood without being equipped to do so. However, he was reportedly under the care of the Luton Leaving Care team until his 21st birthday. Michael's journey from the children's home led him to the streets, never staying in one place for long, travelling back and forth between Luton, Cambridge and Kings Lynn. Known in some street circles as a wanderer due to his ever-changing living arrangements, Michael was also affectionately dubbed the Big Friendly Giant due to his height and placid nature. When he was not mixing with people who manipulated him, Michael was known to be kind and friendly. That said, it was his vulnerabilities that made Michael an easy target for people causing trouble, ensnaring him in situations he struggled to navigate. The only person who remained a constant presence in Michael's life during this period was James Watt. A tie that bound the pair was James's relationship with Michael's sister, Patricia. Michael Gilbert intermittently attempted to work, but could never hold down a job. He tried door-to-door glazing sales for a time without much success. As the months unfolded, Michael also struggled with securing stable accommodation. He moved around various hostels in Luton, while James Watt continued to rack up more charges. In 2001, James was arrested and bailed for assault. Upon his release, he made contact with Michael and said that he could come and stay with him at his family's semi-detached council house on Yeovil Road in Luton. There was one condition. Michael needed to pay rent to James's mother. Michael said that he had no income, but James told him that his family would come up with a solution. The home on Yeovil Road was occupied by James, his three brothers Richard, Robert and Colin, and his parents Antonio Watt and Jennifer Smith Dennis. When Michael arrived at the property he discovered that there was no bed for him within the cramped living conditions. But to Michael, it was better than living on the streets, and he was staying with someone he knew. James improvised and put a worn blanket on the floor next to his bed and told his friend he could sleep there. Accustomed to sleeping rough, Michael accepted the makeshift arrangement. Thank you. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When Michael Gilbert first settled into the Watt family home, they registered him as unemployed, allowing them to access benefits to cover his rent. Almost immediately, Michael found himself the victim of violence at the hands of the Watt brothers. Recognising the danger he was in, Michael contacted Luton Social Services and asked them to protect him. He reverted to life on the streets, but a couple of weeks later, Michael saw James Watt, who welcomed him to return to Yeovil Road. Michael naively hoped that there was a shift in the atmosphere at the home, and he agreed. Upon his return, he found himself the victim once more of the brother's brutality. He was assaulted numerous times, but in January 2002, the violence against him escalated significantly. Michael found himself held hostage, and over the next couple of days, he was frequently assaulted. 
these assaults included appalling acts where Michael was cut with a knife and shot with a pellet gun. Jennifer and Antonio were aware that Michael was being abused by their sons, but they remained passive and refused to intervene. Michael eventually managed to escape and return to the streets. He was unsure where to turn, but he eventually reached out to his estranged mother, Rosalie. When she saw him, his face was bruised, and he confided to her that he had been held hostage and repeatedly assaulted by the Watt brothers. Michael was apprehensive about reporting the incidents to the police, but Rosalie contacted them on his behalf. Despite a delayed response, an investigation was eventually launched, during which Michael provided a detailed statement. He told them that after the assaults, he had visited the hospital. However, complications arose when attempts to reach Michael for further discussion were met with resistance, as he refused to answer their calls. Officers from the Bedfordshire Constabulary continued looking into the allegations and discovered that Michael hadn't visited the hospital as he had claimed. This prompted the police to reach out to social services, where they were informed that a man believed to be Michael Gilbert had a history of making false allegations. For this reason, the case was closed. Many years later, Michael's family were interviewed about the type of person he was. Although they had a fractured relationship, they remembered him fondly and acknowledged that he was easily led. He could get um, taken advantage of the money or, or anything. He was quite kind-hearted. And... He'd do anything for anybody. His main problem was he had a heart and it was too big. Too kind and let people walk all over him and stuff, really. Too forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. During 2002, Michael Gilbert lived at five different addresses in Luton and throughout Norfolk. However, the Watt brothers caught up with him, and not wanting to let Michael go, they forced him back to Yeovil Road. His return to the property meant a continuation of violence at the hands of the brothers especially his old friend James. Infuriated that Michael dared to report them, he was pushed up against a wall and used as target practice with an air rifle. The abuse continued, and so did the antisocial behaviour following numerous complaints about the family. They were eventually evicted from Yeovil Road in September 2002. The Watts gathered up their belongings and pets and moved to a new property owned by the council on Russell Street in Luton. Over the subsequent months, the torment escalated and Michael was forced to clean, cook, wash up and do all of the household chores. With only one person away from the home as they were working, there was no reprieve or time alone for Michael Gilbert. Stripped of his monthly benefits, he was subjected to further dehumanising treatment as he was handcuffed to a bed each night. His clothes were often confiscated to prevent him from getting away again. The torment never seemed to end, 
as Michael was forced to endure degrading acts such as being ordered to drink his own urine. James Watt and his brothers derived pleasure from harming Michael, continually devising ever more brutal methods of assault. This included igniting his pubic hair, striking him with a baseball bat and jabbing him with a dirty syringe. He was forced to stand in scalding water and was smashed over the head with snooker balls and fluorescent lighting. Another method of torture involved James Watt attaching pliers to Michael's testicles and parading him around the house. In 2004, the Watt family relocated to another council house on Halliard Close in Luton, ushering in a heightened phase of brutality. By this time, Michael Gilbert's sister Patricia had broken up with James, and James's new girlfriend Natasha Oldfield moved in with the family. Richard Watt's girlfriend Nicola Roberts was also living at the address. At the new home, Michael, then aged 22, was sexually assaulted on multiple occasions and was even stabbed in the chest. The wound was so severe that Michael was taken to the hospital for treatment. Michael lied to the staff about how he got the injury as he had no choice. The Watts were keeping a close eye on him. A story was fabricated about Michael being attacked by a stranger on the street. Following his treatment at the hospital, Michael returned to stay with the Watt family. Sometime later that year, Michael sought treatment for anxiety from the primary healthcare facility. He reported having flashbacks to both physical and sexual assaults by his sister's boyfriend. The boyfriend was never named, but it was implied that he was referring to James Watt. Michael refused to see a counsellor. He also wasn't honest with the GP about his living situation. He said he was staying with a girlfriend, not with his abuser who was a registered sex offender. As the torment continued... Michael was coerced into participating in the brothers' criminal activities. In 2006, he shouldered the blame for one of their crimes and found himself behind bars. Upon his release, Michael was coerced to move back in with the Watts. The following year presented a momentary window of opportunity for Michael Gilbert to escape. In June, he had managed to leave, moving into a hostel in Cambridge. He told the staff that he feared for his life, leading them to classify him as a vulnerable person. On the 29th of that month, Michael was standing outside the job centre with a friend from the hostel, Daryl Everest when James Watt made an appearance. James had been determined to track Michael down, using Michael's national insurance number to impersonate him. He had called the benefits office and found out that Michael had been signing on in Cambridge. Following a brief conversation, Michael reluctantly entered a car with James, 
leaving Daryl shaken by what he had witnessed. Recounting Michael's reaction, Daryl said he looked petrified. Daryl was concerned about Michael, so he filed a missing persons report and described what he had witnessed to the police. With Michael failing to return to the hostel by the following morning, inquiries were initiated to locate him. Police conducted checks at local hospitals and other hostels, yet there was no trace of Michael Gilbert. During the ongoing investigation into Michael's disappearance by the Cambridgeshire Constabulary, a parallel investigation was ongoing in Bedfordshire. Officers in Bedfordshire reached out to police in Cambridgeshire and explained that Michael Gilbert was wanted on suspicion of rape. While officers from both constabularies continued searching for Michael, they were told by Daryl Everest that Michael had left Luton because he was getting death threats. As the search progressed, the police also made contact with Rosalie. She said she hadn't seen her son in about six months, but this wasn't unusual. It was noted that they had gone up to nine months without contact. Continuing their search efforts over the subsequent 48 hours, the police elevated the urgency of the case, designating Michael as a high-risk missing person and a victim of a possible abduction. On July 11, 2007, Michael was eventually tracked down in the company of James Watt at the Arundel Shopping Centre in Luton during a routine stop. When he was taken into custody by Bedfordshire police, who sought Michael in connection with an alleged rape, they made contact with the Cambridgeshire Constabulary who were also searching for him. At the police station, Michael never mentioned that he was abducted when interviewed. Unbelievably, the Bedfordshire police soon realised that the man they had in custody shared the same name as the rape suspect they were after, but it wasn't him. Michael Gilbert was told he was free to go. It was only when he prepared to leave the police station that Michael confided to a police officer that he had been abducted and abused by the Watt family. However, he told them he didn't want to press charges. I do not wish to make a complaint against these people for any of the offences I have talked about because it will only make it worse for me in the long run. I just wish to return to Cambridge without fear of them following. I do not wish any more to do with them. I will not support a police prosecution and will refuse to attend court. As Michael was speaking with the police, James Watt... James's partner Natasha and Richard Watt's partner Nicola were waiting outside the police station. Michael said he didn't want to go with them, so the police arranged for him to return to Cambridge. They escorted him out of the police station via the back entrance to avoid the family. However, the Bedfordshire police never passed on Michael's statement to the Cambridgeshire Constabulary that he had been abducted and abused by the Watts. 
this meant the investigation was never reopened. In Cambridge, Michael was finally free from the Watt family, but for how long? During this period, he spoke with a GP and told them a series of untruths about a girlfriend and a child who were killed by a drunk driver in 2001. The doctor noted, He was a hyperactive child whose family disowned him, would like to see a psychiatrist. His voices went depressed, and they accuse him of being ugly. Not been on antidepressants, but had diazepam for anxiety. While living on the streets, Michael crossed paths with outreach worker Ross Watkins. Outreach workers engage with homeless people and offer them support and guidance. Ross depicted Michael as a pleasant yet somewhat childlike young man. Ross recalled, He was quite innocent, trying to impress people. He was naive streetwise, scared of dealing with authority, used to lend out lots of his benefit money. According to a homeless shelter's risk assessment of Michael at the time, he was low risk in all areas except for vulnerability, which identified him as fleeing violence. Michael left Cambridge for Blackburn, Lancashire in January 2008. It appeared as though he'd put some distance between himself and the Watts. He even met a young woman named Tina Garner, and they started a relationship. Michael's life seemed to be improving, but the positive changes would only be fleeting. The Watt family would not leave him alone. James Watt discovered that Michael was missing, and employing the same tactic he had used before, James was able to figure out where Michael was living. James called the benefits office and with Michael's details he pretended to be him. The unsuspecting worker on the other end of the line informed him that Michael was signing on in Blackburn. On January 28th Michael had been standing outside the job centre with Tina's brother when a car pulled up beside them. James Watt brazenly jumped out of the vehicle and grabbed Michael before forcing the man he once called a friend into the car. The vehicle sped away, leaving Michael's companion worried as they had just witnessed a kidnapping in broad daylight. Tina's brother told his family what he had seen, and not long after they began receiving text messages from Michael's phone. In one text message, Michael explained away his sudden absence by writing his mother had died and he had to go to Bristol. When they were eventually able to speak to Michael on the phone, he said he was sorry for leaving and then suddenly ended the call. Three days after James had taken Michael, Tina's family called the Lancashire police to report their concerns. On February 1st, 2008, police officers called at Tina's family home and took a statement in relation to the incident as well as Michael's phone number. 
It would later emerge that the Lancashire police had either taken down the wrong number or had been given an incorrect number as when they called. Another man picked up and told the police he didn't know a Michael Gilbert. Instead of realising that a miscommunication had occurred, the Lancashire Constabulary formed the opinion that Michael had left of his own volition and was intentionally avoiding them. The case was closed as a result. Back at the Watt family home, Michael Gilbert was subjected to repeated violence that was steadily escalating, from isolated incidents to beatings that were recorded on some of the family members' mobile phones. One particular video showed Michael pinned up against a wall while two unidentified members of the family repeatedly punched him in the face. In the background, the rest of the group could be heard laughing, and a voice calls out to the attackers telling them not to hold back. Go, go, go. Go on, man. It feels awkward, doesn't it? It's recording, man. Go on, man. Yay! Go on, Mark. Back, go on. During another incident, Michael was goaded into provoking a large pet lizard until it eventually lashed out, striking him with its powerful tail. After enduring years of sustained abuse and torture, Michael had become a toy for the Watts and the few who dated the Watt brothers. Something that highlighted how far the abuse had gone was a diary written by James's partner, Natasha Oldfield. One entry was entitled Game Show. Natasha outlined a pitch in which players were to pay money for the opportunity to assault Michael in varying ways. Entries in her diary included a price list, ranging from £5 for a slap to £25 for a headbutt. Later that year, the family relocated to Marlborough Road in Luton and forced Michael to come with them. There was no escape. The level of torture increased as the Watt family devised new ways to inflict torment upon Michael Gilbert. Why didn't anybody notice something terrible was going on there? Well, I guess that the um, incidents that they were called out to over the years were relatively low-level antisocial behaviour, relatively minor matters, and for some of the on some occasions the brothers were arrested for various things, but there was certainly never any indication that um, violence of this nature and an escalation of this nature was occurring within the, within the home. This is the end of episode 25. The second instalment in this two-part case will be available in four days. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.